Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast from filmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. Hello. Hello. We also have Bill Graham. Where the fuck is this from? What? What? Where did you find this? This is the Lennon Sisters. <laughs> oh, this is a great song. Yeah, this is a classic. <laughs> okay. Not a classic to me, but it is classic, I can tell. Yes. <laughs> Wow. It's like four <laughs> girls ranging from ages 15 to 8 singing this song. So, yeah, okay. interesting. Um, they're still around, the Lennon sisters, but I think they've had to swap out some sisters. Anyway, uh, completely <laughs> unnecessary context for this song. We also have a special guest with us here today to talk about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That is Alex Heaney. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. You are, or, you're very welcome. Jesus. <laughs> The most conceited thing to say to someone to thank them that just thank you for being there. Um, thank you for joining us. Yeah. Yes. So, Alex Heaney, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, tell them about yourself, where you write for, and where you can be found. Uh, okay. Yes. Um, so, I'm Alex Heaney. I'm the editor in chief of Seventh Row, which is an online publication and publishing house where we publish um, four ebooks a year on a particular uh, filmmaker, film, and or genre. So, uh, we just put out a book on Celine Siamo with a special focus on Portrait of a Lady on Fire, though it covers all of her films. And you can order that at siamabook.com. Um, and our next book is going to be about Kelly Reichart with a focus on First Cow, though again it will cover all of her films. Um, and we sort of, what we aim to do with our books is to create a conversation between the art and the artist. Our books have both interviews and essays in them, interviews generally not just with the director or actors, but also with like the entire technical team. Um, and actually, your colleague at the film stage has said some very nice things about them. Uh, which colleague is that uh chris schobert oh okay schobert. great yeah. all right well yeah we are here today to talk about portrait of a lady on fire before we do that the usual mishigas follow us on twitter at film stage show facebook the film stage show email us podcast filmstage.com uh if you would like to support this program go to uh patreon.com slash the film stage show and become a patron for as little as one dollar an episode Presently, if you become a patron and then email podcast@filmstage.com to let us know, you can get a Blu-ray. What stuff do we have? Failsafe, the paranoid Cold War thriller, which is an amazing movie. A new restoration of Kundan. Madawan, When We Were Kings, the Criterion edition of Carlos, Queen and Slim, and a new Blu-ray of Coming to America, amongst many others, which you should covet and desire to have and can easily have by becoming a patron at again patreon.com slash the film stage show we are also brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema we're living in a post coronavirus world ladies and gentlemen that means a lot of people are like oh my god i can never go outside again <laughs> so how are you gonna see good movies if you can't get to the art house cinema 
Get the art house cinema that comes to you. It's movie where every day their curators bring you a brand new film to watch and enjoy. You have 30 days to check it out before it disappears. So there's a constantly rotating selection of 30 films. On the subject of world-ending plagues, Mubi <laughs> is currently in the middle of their Apocalypse Now series, and they have The Last Man on Earth, starring Richard Price. This is a, uh, I was going to say remake, but it's an adaptation of the Richard Matheson novel, I Am Legend. Yes, that I Am Legend, the one that Will Smith eventually made a movie of. The synopsis is as such. In a post-epidemic nightmare world, scientist Robert Morgan, Vincent Price, is the only man immune to the plague which has transformed the entire population of Earth into vampire-like creatures. He becomes the monster-slaying vampire, or the, yeah, the monster-slayer that the vampire society fears. So if you would like to check out this movie, amongst many, many others, all you gotta do is go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. Uh, I just also realized that I didn't talk about this last week. They've got uh, a great series called The Vulgar Disruptor Trauma Restored. And so right now, you can stream the movie exclusive of The Toxic Avenger. <laughs> Why is that? A that lot? is something you can indeed do. <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. All you got to do again is go to MUBI.com slash film stage. Remember, wash your hands for 20 seconds. Don't touch your face. Uh, so uh, how bad does this need to get before we realize this is in bad taste and maybe shouldn't make this this a bit? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's a great <laughs> question. Uh, maybe when someone I know gets it. <laughs> oh, great. Cool. It's topical. That's the kind of solipsism I mean, I was that gonna I exist say, with. Don't you want people to touch their face so then they have to stay home and watch movie? <laughs> See, that feels like it's in bad taste to me. <laughs> Go lick some doorknobs, go suck on some uh, handrails, stay home, watch a movie. Uh, Michael, how many cases have there been in the Chicago area? I I don't know. I, a few. A few? We've got few. five in Maryland and one in D.C., so it's coming for me. I can feel I've, it. I've heard it will double every week, though. I, I am not doing a good job in being thoughtful about reading about coronavirus i'm definitely panicking myself so that's not super great i will say though okay i need to say this on on mike i saw someone so i'm seeing more and more masks out in the world and i saw someone with a cloth mask that had a parental advisory label on it and i have <laughs> never seen something edgier in my life that is so cool that's like in the road when the little boy draws a monster face on the painter's mask that he uses to keep from inhaling ash you know it was so edgy that i didn't want to tell her that that's not remotely going to help her alex where are you located again I'm in Toronto, former home of stars. Oh, good times. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. th- is that what Toronto's known for now? Yeah, they have that on the <laughs> sign. No, no, not at all. We're known for <laughs> our they, crack smoking yeah, there. Ryan, they have it on their sign. <laughs> <laughs> but the last, well, I went to Chicago during the SARS virus, SARS outbreak, and all anybody said to us was like, oh, do you guys have SARS? And we're like, no, I mean, there aren't that many people with SARS in Toronto. It's always great when the um, the bigotry moves from uh, the Asian population to the Canadians. (laughs) 
Oh man, the SARS <sighs> was so long ago, wasn't it? I feel like I was in high school. Yeah, yeah, I was in middle school. Yeah, I was like 2002. Oh, man. It's gonna be fun just growing up and looking back on all the pandemics. Yes, swine flu, bird flu, SARS. Oh yes, swine flu, good times. There is enough that every one of us on this show could have our favorite. But let's not do that. That might be in bad taste. Um, Speaking of people wearing masks, let's talk about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. (laughs) Cinema's greatest romance, uh, as as you may have heard, in a billion promoted tweets from Neon, who is releasing it. This film, the newest from uh, Celine Sciamma, uh, writer and director. And uh, it concerns itself with a portrait artist who goes to a remote island so that she can secretly make a portrait of a young woman who is being wedded off to a man in Milan. And the relationship that forms between the two of them, it is currently out in theaters. It's been out for a while, but it seems to be still expanding. So we were like, hey, we should wait until it's, you know, bigger. And now we've finally hit critical mass. We're doing it. We're talking Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a movie that was on. Two of our year-end lists. Here is the trailer. Je suis peintre. L'homme intéressé par ma fille est Milanais. Nous portons là-bas si le portrait lui plaît. Don't even know why I had to give a synopsis. They just said the entire synopsis of the movie right there. <laughs> everyone understood it <laughs> for all of our french listeners <laughs> there's bound to be one sure sure all right i mean i speak french yeah there you go canada mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah but you're much more cultured than us alex <laughs> first of all michael you don't know me like that so i find that to be slanderous <laughs> I, I, am I wrong? Do you know French, Brad? I don't know French. I know a little. I know. I know enough Spanish to get along, and I know enough Russian to confuse people. <laughs> what does that mean? I, uh, <laughs> that's so, enigmatic. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the confusion, man. Um, so in college, I was like, I got to take a language credit, and everyone's like, I'm just taking Spanish or French again. And I was like, I want to really enrich myself in this college experience. I will learn Russian. With the high-minded idea that, like, maybe if I learned enough, one day I could read Anna Karenina in the original language. Uh, that never happened. Maybe we'll someday. Uh, as for me confusing people, whenever assholes with clipboards would try to stop me on campus, I would say that I couldn't understand what they were saying in Russian. And oh they would say, God. oh, I'm sorry. Oh, and that's th- a good tactic. Uh, the other thing that happens is that if I get drunk enough and I am in the right mood, I slip into Russian and cannot stop. Because uh, sensory, I guess, you know, every, almost every time I studied for Russian, I was pretty plastered in college. Do you ever dream or think in Russian then? I sometimes dream in Russian. It's very weird, though, because I only took really? it for a year, you know? Okay, sure. And meanwhile, I have like five years of Spanish under my belt, and that shit never enters my subconscious. <laughs> So who knows? Okay. But when I moved to Houston in uh, my junior year of high school, I was able to speak with the man at the tree farm to get us the perfect Christmas tree. He was he was Russian. No, okay. Yeah, he was clearly Russian. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh man. Um, anyway, so what are we here to talk about? Are we here to talk about uh, what, like our languages? Are we here to talk about the coronavirus? Uh, no, we are here to talk about portrait of Lady on Fire. We begin as always with our nutshell thoughts. Moving into a spoiler section later on. Let us start with our guest, Alex Heaney. What did you think of Portraits of a Lady on Fire? Well, I'm sure this is quite a shock, but I really loved it. Um, that's definitely why I wrote a book. <laughs> definitely why I co-edited a book on it was because I disliked it. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's just a, a really wonderful film. Um, I first saw it at TIFF on the first day of TIFF, and it kind of ruined all the other movies there for me. Um, it just made everything else look bad. It was just so good. Um, yeah, I don't know. Very hard to figure out how to summarize your thoughts when you just wrote a book on it. Um, (laughs) but yeah, it's just, it's, it's such a beautiful film that I think is a film that's so rich that the more you watch it, the more you talk about it, the more you get out of it. Um, everything about it is so wonderful from, like, and people have talked a lot about the gorgeous images, but I think equally amazing is the sound. Um, just the sound of the the breathing and the footsteps and the ocean. And apparently, um, Celine Siama, when I interviewed her, told me that she actually choreographed the footsteps and the breathing. So she told people when to breathe in and when to breathe out and had a rhythm for the footsteps. I think that, like, really pays off in the film. Um yeah, and I think the two lead performances from Adele Hinnell and Noemi Merlant are, you know, among the best of the last decade. Um, I don't know. What's not to love? It's a great romance, but it's also a great story about sort of women's history, about life under patriarchy, um, and about memory. So it's, it kind of really has it all. Alex, I'm kind of curious before we uh, move on, I do kind of want to pick your brain a little bit as someone who does, who is, you know, looking for filmmakers that you want to do books about. um, Is there a general, is there a general, uh, like, like, how does that work in terms of you first? So I'm assuming like as an editor, there's certain films that you love, you know, something like Peterloo or Leave No Trace or, you know, things you've done in the past. Mm -hmm. But what was it? What was it specifically, so not just portrait about Sama, that you felt like she deserved a book? Um, well, I've been a big fan of Sama ever since her first film, Water Lilies, which I saw the year that it came out. Um, and I've been following her career closely. So I kind of always knew I wanted to do some kind of deep study. And that was like well before we'd even started writing books. Um, and so... You know, as we've sort of had discussions about who are we going to write books about in the future, Siam has been on our list for quite a long time. Um, we were just sort of waiting for the opportunity. I think at this point, we sort of decided that the best books tend to be for filmmakers who've made at least four films. Mm. Um, and recently, it just seems like a lot of people's fourth film is kind of their breakout film. So this is Siam's fourth film. The Souvenir was Joanna Hogg's fourth film. We did a book on her. Um Leave no trace. Well, I guess Winter's Bone was more popular, but like, sure. Leave no trace was Deborah Granick's fourth film because she oh. also did a documentary, um, Down to the Bone. Yeah, and Stray Dog as well, right? <clears throat> yeah, yep. uh, yeah. So that's or four. Stray Dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, 
So, like, there are people that we know we're going to do books on in the future. We're just wait- waiting for them to make enough movies. Sure. Um, and, uh, I don't know, like, with the criteria, it's, 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 in some ways it's very precise, and in other ways it's, like, very just sort of whatever strikes our fancy. It has to be something that we're, it has to be something that, like, we really are excited about, because you kind of ruin that director for yourself after spending <laughs> three months doing nothing. But watching it, like, with this film, what happened is we published the book the day that it came out. So the day that it came out, people are finally excited and talking about Celine Siam, and we're like, never again! Do not make me think about Celine Siam again! <laughs> And it's not because we didn't love the film, but it's like all we did was eat, sleep, and breathe Siama for three months. And we were like, I need a break. I'm ready to move on to Kelly Reichardt, which I'm sure in the, in three months we'll be saying Kelly Reichardt never again. So. <laughs> you try to do people who are like, you feel have been less served by like critic like you yeah know, would you never do one on martin scorsese really is i guess the question yeah, no we would never do one on martin scorsese i think generally speaking yeah what we're trying to do is create is do like an in-depth critical analysis of filmmakers who are not necessarily like if there's 10 books on them we're not going to write a book sure. where in a lot of cases we've written the only book or the first book like we wrote the first book on joanna hogg and this is the first book on celine siama I look forward um, to the book you all write on S. Craig Zollard for his fourth film. <laughs> um, I like we don't only write books about women, but like fil- filmmakers. But they, we've certainly done a bunch because we did also Lynn Ramsey's "You Were Never Really Here" mm-hmm. um, because we like to interview um, all of the tech people. Like we talk to costume designers and production designers and sound designers and. Um, composers, editors, um, we're usually interested in filmmakers that really think about all of those things. Um, so like there are filmmakers we like, but we may never do a book on, like, I really like Haifa Al-Mansur, but I feel like her movies are a bit more in, like, about the story than they are about all of those technical aspects, so I'm not sure there'd be Mm -hmm. enough for us to sink our teeth into, but then you have something like... You were never really here, and it's just a sensory feast. Um, and the same is true of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I mean, in the future, we'll definitely be doing books. Whenever Alice Winokur does her next film, we'll probably do a book on her because we loved Proxima and Disorder. And I'm sure this will surprise you, Michael, but Joachim Trier is on our docket. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? I'm so surprised. <laughs> Uh, so, but I mean, that's like this, 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 our sort of approach to interviewing lots of different people, but a film kind of started sure. with him, um, cause we first did that like most in depth with louder than bombs, I guess, was our first sort of approach to this. And then that was so rewarding that it kind of just, we, we kept doing it for other filmmakers and expanding and expanding. Um, so yeah, it's usually films that are, um, I don't know that I would say under the radar, but are certainly like are worth are just as good or worth talking about as, say, a Scorsese film, but doesn't have the same level of critical analysis already dedicated to it. Um, So like we're trying to do something completely new that hasn't been done before, I guess, and to draw attention to and celebrate filmmakers now rather than, I mean, in 10 years Siama might be canonized. 
Um, but we're but like, you were on the forefront. <laughs> <laughs> you knew Siana yeah. when she was playing the clubs, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I guess to answer your question, like why Siama? I mean, one of the things is that she had a profound impact on our site. Um, when I, I interviewed her for girlhood back in oh, 2015, when I was asking her, she was saying, she said to me, you know, that cinema is the only art form ever where you get to share somebody else's loneliness. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's, that's first of all, that's brilliant. Um, <laughs> and second of all, like, how do you do that? And I was thinking, Oh, it's probably how you frame. And she says, yeah, it's how you frame, but it's also sound. And I was like, what sound? How does sound do that? Um, <laughs> And it's like I had never thought about sound in the way that she talked about it as have it, how it affects you emotionally. And then after that, we started asking all the directors about sound. And now that's a big part of how we cover film. And it's basically all down to her kind of offhand comment in an interview that I did with her five years ago. So nice. we were always kind of going to pick up on that, I guess, at some point. That's really cool. I, I, so just to transition us back to Portrait just a little bit, I, I'm curious, what was Sama's reaction when you heard that you guys were doing this book? Oh, this is a pretty good story. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I, I, cause I, at the end of my, so I interviewed her at TIFF at the end of the interview, I said to her, um, you know, we're working on a book about Portrait and about your work and are you, would you be up to, talking some more and she's like who's doing this I said who's we and I said oh it's seventh row and she said seventh row wait a second you're Alex we met at Sundance we had a moment and I was like oh my god you remember me from five years ago? we talked for 20 minutes um so yeah that was pretty exciting for me that's pretty great All right, on that note Michael Snydell what did you think of Portrait of Lady? <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah I, I i like this film quite a bit um I, I i've seen it i've seen it twice now and i think what is what is interesting about it is it's in a way about one of my favorite subjects and it's about the notion of how we demystify an image um in the sense that this you know the first uh 30 to 45 minutes has a lot of echoes of a, a number of art house films, a number of specifically more austere period films, like, you know, something like, um, and I don't mean this a, a derogatory because I love this film, but like the piano or something. Um, and I think that what is so interesting about this film is that it, its form very much mirrors its content in the sense that early on there's so much emphasis on uh as we said this woman is trying to or excuse me uh marianne uh the painter is trying to paint uh aloise i, I want to make sure that i have this right yes <laughs> Um, Marianne is trying to uh, paint Eloise in in secret. And, and, you know, she is constantly she's studying her, you know, she's studying her earlobe, for instance, or her hands or and like very much early on, this film has a sense that you are getting this very romantic notion of this this woman, but she doesn't really exist as a woman. She only exists as this figure to be painted. And I think that this film is so fascinating in the way that slowly, uh, slowly but uh, very consciously, 
it, it changes that this person no longer becomes, you know, this image and this figure again, and they come out of their shell. You start to understand them as a person, you, you know, you start to also understand how uh, Eloise feels with with her and the notion of in the same way as um, some other uh, Sama films, including something like Tomboy and Girlhood, yet you start to see this relationship emerge that's uh, much more complicated. And, you know, even the filmmaking has this certain like tentative light touch at the beginning. And then as it keeps going, it, it gets a lot more um loquacious it becomes more open it and it starts to especially really open up this idea of femininity uh as it's i I don't know i guess that's a spoiler but um yeah i i really like this film i think occasionally uh again i think that its form mirrors the content but i think some of the the way the photography gets a little bit uh, it gets a little bit overly blunt to me, even though it makes uh, it makes complete sense why it does that. And I think it's a tiny bit rushed towards the end, which again, I understand that's the point. but I, I I wish there was just a little bit more time spent in the, I don't know, I'll call it the honeymoon period <laughs> to be vague here. Um, yeah, so I I like this film quite a bit. Uh, I, and yeah, I, uh, I, I really like how it really comes into its own later. Uh, the film it especially reminds me of in the second half is actually uh, Andrew Hayes' uh, Weekend. Um, so yeah, I, I like this movie a lot and I don't want people to think it's like – hard to watch or you know cool to the touch or anything i think it's a really emotional involving film all right bill graham i i like this movie a lot um (laughs) i'm not gonna go on too much uh i think there's plenty to discuss i think there's plenty to uh kind of dive into and that's kind of all i want to say right now um i liked it a lot uh, it, it ended up in my top 10, uh, towards my top five. I think it was number three, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, yeah, I, I've watched it twice. Uh, thankfully I got a screener of it and, uh, it was fun turning up the volume really loud on this film, uh, considering it doesn't really have much of a score throughout the film. Um, so that was interesting cause you get to hear a lot of the sound details and stuff like that, that you normally wouldn't. Um, in most movies, just simply because the score is usually omnipresent. Um, yeah, yeah there's like three moments in the entire movie where there's uh, diegetic music. Yeah, it's. Mm-hmm. Well, what you're saying about the sound is really interesting because, like, when I talked to Celine Siamo, one of the things she was telling me about was that she made certain scenes very quiet because she wanted people to be still when they saw it in a cinema. So, like, you couldn't move without causing. Mm-hmm causing Mm -hmm. trouble and then (laughs) (laughs) the film has like a really big dynamic range because it goes from like being very very quiet to quite loud with those waves um so i Mm -hmm. i'm with you i i really love the sound in this film is one of my favorite things um i'm gonna be the person who's least hot 
on this film. Uh, that wasn't meant to be a pun on the title. I apologize. <clears throat> I um, I cannot. Are you argue- hot headed about it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you fired up about it? Yeah. No. I'm fucking furious. Uh. No. I am. Um, I like. I had a, I had the issue where like I watched this movie and got to that final scene, you know, that final shot in that moment, and I could feel everything coming to it, and it, it made sense to me. And I was like, why am I not more moved by this? And I think that I just the movie to me has a lot of the aesthetics and the trappings of a romance, but to me personally, I just never connected with the like the more deep emotional connection between these two women. I mean, and it's, it's weird to say that because both of these actresses have really expressive faces, especially when they're trying not to express anything. They, I'm sure that people understand what I'm trying to say. Their their repressed glances are very striking. Um, uh, Marianne, who's played by, uh, Naomi Merlant, Merlon? I don't know. I apologize. Uh, she, it was, it was interesting. So much of the movie is fixated upon her face because we are, um, watching her gaze and then we are in her gaze and, and seeing all that. And she just kept shifting for me. Um, she, she at times looked like so many different people depending on the emotion running through her. It almost became a game with myself scene to scene being like, oh, now she looks like, uh, Emma Watson and now she looks a little bit like uh, Michelle Dockery and like I just kept and, it, and this is all like as a way of saying oh and sometimes she looked like Kristen Stewart it's just like she's so expressive in the face that she barely had to talk at all for me to like see everything and all the conflict in her but weirdly the the scenes of longing and and uh, uncertainty and unknowingness played a lot better for me than when the they finally you know forged their connection is it is it a spoiler this is a a romance between women it is a lesbian love story yeah right so when so when they finally like when when the 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 fireworks go off when they finally are able and free to express their love for one another there was just a part of it was like i feel like we skipped the like the 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 more earnest emotional thing and for a while i thought it was like oh this is just like pure physical like lust and and everything but then they were just speaking with such intimacy and i just felt like i was missing a portion to to make that more well known and i don't know if that's just a a um what's the word i'm looking for if that's a symptom because of the repressiveness of the time they couldn't talk about it but every once in a while they would say a, a line of dialogue or something that felt really tenured to me and it almost dipped into cliche in a way that i didn't like it's it's really crazy because like there's not a frame of this movie that i would think to change i think that the cinematography is amazing the the way that the camera is set up i mean the the fact that they they choreographed the breathing and the steps like it's all on screen it all works so well but it almost feels like it it's micromanaged to a point that there's none of the spontaneity of the actual act of earnestly messily falling in love with someone that usually defines in my mind, like a really great screen romance. So this is, this is like, it's like in a, maybe it is, it is like a ballet. Like I watch Swan Lake and I can 
feel the emotions being expressed at me. But for as much as I love ballet, I rarely get emotionally wrapped up in it. It's more about the dancers and the music. Sure. Uh, whereas Let's- in cinema or, or, or fiction, you know, novels, prose, whatever, I, I get a little more of that hook in my soul. And so this, I, I saw the dancing and I heard the music, but I never had that hook in my soul. So I'm curious, did you have the same reaction to Carol? Uh, no, weirdly enough. Hmm. Uh, Carol, I, felt- I had that reaction to Carol the first time I saw it. And then the second time I was like, I don't know what was wrong with me. I, I wept all through the whole thing. <laughs> I um, I'd have to go back and listen to our episode on Carol. I think that I might have been too. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I think I was underwhelmed by Carol, but I did feel the the actual emotion between those two characters more than I felt it here. Um. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to keep just bringing up uh, yeah. films about lesbian romance. But I, I thought about <laughs> Blue is the warmest color a lot while watching this, and I was like, God, at least it's not that movie. <laughs> because that movie, but but weirdly, that movie, I I think um, it's like a little bit of the inverse. I think those ca- those actors are working so hard against the direction mm. to sell that romance. <laughs> um, In Blue is the warmest color. Yes. You're saying? Like they, okay. that, that movie's uh, not good. It is problematic. I feel for very a lot of reasons. Um, but I think that those two characters do forge a connection that like reaches out into the audience, and you can feel that. I think they are underserved by I don't know what was that like a twenty minute sex scene. Just fucking ugh. who's the warmest color? Well, Remember when that movie was doing. like. I just like I I think about that movie sometimes and I'm like people loved that movie and I have any of them watched it again like whatever happened to that director isn't he a terrible creep or something who yeah Yeah. but you know Polanski won a Cesar so oh god (laughs) the world is a broken place um but yeah I mean it's it's just weird because this is something that I feel with with a lot of movies sometimes where it's just I can't I can't I can't do all the work on my end to translate the choreography into the emotional experience and i can still appreciate the choreography but i can't make myself feel that well so i'm curious because michael and bill it sounds like you had the opposite reaction is that right or you just like other things about the film bill you can go ahead yeah i mean i i've i've truly fell for the romance and everything like that their connection and uh i didn't have any issues with that um, I think part of what, what sells me on the film is when I first watched it, there's so much held back initially. And, mm. uh, I, I just love that kind of, I, I don't want to call it the chase or anything like that, but I, I love, I loved not knowing what the hell this film was even about, to be honest with you. Um, I had heard it was really good. That was about all I knew. And so when we find out, like, there's this very striking image of the previous portrait painter's failed attempt to do the portrait, Mm -hmm. and her face is, like, smeared because he was just unhappy with how her face was turning out. He he was happy with the dress, the the look of the body, everything else, but like he couldn't get the face right. Um and like I was like, "Oh shit, is this uh I can't remember the name of of the famous story, but like there's there's uh one about like a a painting that uh Dorian Gray. Painting, yeah, Dorian Gray. 
And mm. uh, <laughs> I was like, I was like, what the shit? Is this another like creepy ass horror film from uh, from uh, Neon? And then, no, it turns out it's, it's just a lesbian romance. And that's just kind of the creepy kind of setup is we just don't like is she misshapen and no none of that turns out to be true it's just kind of a lark and i loved not knowing what to expect from this film when i first saw it um and so that kind of caught me by surprise and look you know you can tab that up to me being uh, you know, my uh, having a, my head in the sand about like what this film was even about. But I also like going into a lot of these films blind and taking their turns on their own merits versus, you know, watching a trailer for it. Um, you know, I, I already knew I was going to see this film, so I don't need to see a trailer for it. You know, it's it's one of those things. And and that's a very privileged position where, you know, I get to basically be like, no, I'm, I'm definitely going to set aside two hours for this thing. Right. Um, but it's nice not knowing what the film is and letting it kind of uh, make those kind of stylistic choices and stuff like that. So I, I, I fully fell for the romance at the heart of this um, and the mystery and what was going to happen. You know, um, so yeah, I, I loved it. And I, I, I particularly love the setup of flashing forward or I guess showing the present and then showing this very striking image of the portrait of the lady on fire and then going back. Like, oh, I yeah. love kudos to this movie for getting the titular line out of the way, like immediately. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. I really love what you said about the film sort of withholding and going in, um, going in blind. Cause I think for me, I, I, I mean, I haven't thought about this in a while cause I've seen it for so many, so many times, but I really think you're right that one of the great pleasures of the film is the way it creates suspense. Like you, you see that image, you see that portrait at the beginning and you're like, who is that woman? What's the story? Why won't you let people see it? And then she goes on this long journey in order to go meet Eloise and everybody she talks, she talks to everybody about her. She talks to the mother about her. She talks to the maid about her that like, by the time we finally meet her, we're like, who is this woman? I've seen the portrait, but it didn't have a face. And then when we finally do meet her, we don't even see her face at first. She's hooded. Yeah. (laughs) She's hooded. We're trailing behind her. And it's just like every part of the film just makes you sort of, you know, sit up and go, what's going to happen next? Even if you know, it's a, even if you know, it's a lesbian romance, like it doesn't even matter because you're like, what am I going to get to see her face? What's the story behind the portrait of the portrait of the lady on fire? Um, you know, how, how does she end up get going from somebody who won't let her paint her to getting that portrait? Um, I think the film is just like a masterclass in structure that it just really brings you with it. And I think it teaches you, it keeps teaching you how to watch it and like that the rules keep changing. Like there's at the beginning, Marianne is giving that class on how to watch and how to draw a portrait. And then you sort of see her applying those skills. And then as soon as um, Eloise agrees to actually be painted, she's constantly questioning Marianne and Marianne has to sort of rethink her thoughts on what it means to do a good portrait. And so like as the characters are challenging each other, then the film is also challenging you. And as far as how to watch the film and how to interpret the characters. And so I also 
I agree that it just kind of gets more and I think Michael said this, it just sort of gets more and more the more you go through it. Yeah, I think I, I think um, what what really kind of and not sold me, but made me uh, it made me appreciate the kind of abbreviated nature of the romance was the the scene where they're talking about Orpheus and Eurysides. And, and I realized that, you know, the whole question is whether you look behind or, and, you know, whether you choose. I think she calls it the poet or the um, I can't remember the two the two Hello, things. But, yes. Thank you. Yeah, as in, like, do you want the ephemeral image or do you want the romance that will last forever? And I realized during that scene that they didn't have a choice. And and I think that's what ultimately works to me for me about that romance is I, I feel that spark immediately. I, I mean, I love the way that it cuts from the scene at the campfire as she faints and then it immediately cuts to them at the rocks and their yes, their so intimate now. their hands are touching now and they are you know um fumbling with each other it, it's it's such a different uh mood that that's that just pivots in that in- exact second and i think that th- what i find so interesting not only about the fact that everyone disappears except for the um I, I guess it made I'm not I'm not sure the handmaiden I'm not sure the proper term for what she would be in this case but um like it, she's the only one that's also in the house with them and you know there is a certain like uh parental relationship that's almost uh, there and not only that but you know as much as we're talking about mystery and stuff there is so much there that then has to do with her trying to get an abortion. Like there's, we see, you know, the scenes where she's running back and forth. We see where she's on a ladder and, you know, um, trying all of these unorthodox techniques and then goes to that, uh, a woman who finally helps her, um, abort the baby. Like those are all things that are, you know, they're frank and, and striking. There's no mystery there. It's about here's what these women are actually pragmatically dealing with on a daily basis. I Alex, I have a question for you, though. I saw I am not going to be able to remember who brought this up on on, on Twitter. And I, I think it's an interesting question. Why do you think that they are? I shouldn't say this. Since they show so much of the abortion, and I think I understand why it spends so much time on that, why do you think they don't show any sexual activity between Eloise and Marianne? It seems they kind of cut around it continuously, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts about it. Well, that's kind of an interesting <laughs> it's interesting because if you ask Celine Siam, she says she will tell you that she shot a sex scene, and I would agree. But a lot of people have said to her, "Why, why don't you have a sex scene?" And I think it's because for her, I think it's about she has a tendency to show what she thinks, where she thinks the important part of the story is. Um, so, I mean. I think something that really helped shape my thinking on this was this essay that um, Ben Flanagan wrote in our book on water lilies. And the inspiration for it was he watched water lilies and um, 
Fat Girl back to back and was really struck by the oh. fact that in Fat Girl, you like watch this girl being raped and you watch all of the horrible things that happen to her. Mm-hmm. And in Water Lilies, you I mean, there isn't rape in Water Lilies, but there are some traumatic things. And those are off screen. And what's what Sam shows us is not the boys being violent creeps. She just shows us the psychological effects on the women. Sure. And I think there's something similar going on here that um, like, why are we showing the abortion? It's because abortion has been blocked out of the history. Like we haven't talked about, talked about it. And the film is, there's a lot in the film about untold histories and about bearing witness. And I think part of the reason we show Mm -hmm. the abortion is because this is, the idea of sort of bearing witness to this and acknowledging that this is a real part of women's lives is a big part of the film. And then that's why they end up drawing this portrait of the abortion in order to, um, you know, mark it down this thing that's not talked about. And I mean, the inspiration for the film was also these women painters from the 1700s that like nobody knew about. Sure. Um, And so putting, so it's about sort of telling this historical story that's about untold histories, kind of, and like almost correcting the historical record in a way. So I think that's why she's showing the abortion. And then I think like, why is, I mean, I think for her, the story between them is not about like what body part is touching what other body parts. Sure. <laughs> Um, but I, I just the intimacy, seems, the, sorry, Alex, sorry, but it's, I think it's just about the intimacy. And so, um, it's really emphasizing what she does show really emphasizes their connection, both emotional and physical. Um, even if other things are not being shown. I just, I find it interesting, especially on the second watch, it, it, again, this isn't. I I don't obviously need a graphic sex scene, or that's not what I'm suggesting. You know, that it, blue it's is the warmest color. Sense. Fifteen minute <laughs> mid shot. That's just nothing but. I I just I just mean that I find the way the film is a little bit precious with its cutting around that physical contact uh, kind of fascinating given the frankness of, of everything else in, you know, especially that section of the film, like, as he spoke about, like, I, I think that unseen history is, that's a, it's a beautiful way to put that, but there's something still a little bit almost oddly repressive to me in, in how they shoot the sexuality. But it, you might be right too, that I'm being, uh, small-minded in in my definition there because you are absolutely right that they're like you know even you see the charge when they're just holding each other and things like that it's just it, it is a little bit fascinating to me that this movie doesn't really cut around things like most of that latter half is very much in real time um other than the moments it cuts around the arguably most explicitly intimate. I, I am going to just look so bad for this conversation. <laughs> Michael just wants to see two lesbians but, have sex. But just, I mean, he just I mean, sees. <laughs> to, 
I mean, to bring it back to that point about like cutting, though, I think part of what she is doing is trying to show these connections. And you mentioned what I think is like the best cut in the film um, between when they're at the bonfire and then when they're on the, the beach. Sure. And there's like a similarity in the movement and you see this like jump ahead in their relationship. And I was watching, she, Siama gave a screen talk. I think it was a, for BAFTA, I want to say. And she was actually talking about that scene. And one of the things she was saying was like, why did she do that is because she had, she'd originally written like something to like tie those two scenes together and then decided that that was basically just plot and she wasn't interested in that. And so she Hmm. decided to make a film that had only scenes that she was interested in and basically cut out all the fluff that you might have felt obligated to put in, but was not interesting. Um, And I imagine that that's kind of part of what's going on with the love scenes. Is it sort of like, do we need to watch them have orgasms or like, is that just kind of boring? And what's interesting is their connection. That, that's so Michael, do you need to see them have orgasms? <laughs> I was, that I was, wasn't meant as a rhetorical question, but I, I was I was Jeez. listening to a podcast, um, and one of the uh, main guys he mentioned uh, sex is fleeting, snuggling is forever. And yeah, I, was I mean just that's like, kind of how I think about it. Like, fuck, the animals have sex, you know? Like, it's 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 the it's the emotions that are bred from the act of intimacy. I mean, like, you know, even the fact that we call it an act of intimacy, like making love, like you don't see two dogs going at it in the park and go, oh, they're making love. Like, no, (laughs) they're having sex. They're breeding. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's a mechanical thing, but these people, the most important part is how they feel before how they act before and then how they feel and how they act after. Like that's where the impact comes from. Sure. Because, you know, like, like, like Bill's uh, quoted from whatever he was listening to where they said that that is sort of true. Like a lot of a lot of movies, I, I think it was Roger Ebert who said, like, sex scenes are hard in movies. A lot of times you could just replace it with a title card that said and then they had sex <laughs> and you wouldn't lose anything. And the the few movies sure. that actually do make sex a, a character moment are uh, more precious for that. But I think that this movie is less interested in them finding like the ecstasy of, you know, orgasm, I guess is we're just going to really lean into this. Uh, then, then the, the liberation of like their souls and their feelings and all that other stuff. In fact, I remember one of my main complaints about blue is the warmest color is that we spend so fucking long watching these two women have sex. And then when one of them cheats on the other, I guess spoilers for blue is the warmest color with a man. We don't see it at all. And I was like, that is a character moment. Like that is the moment that we should, like if we're spending so much time watching someone have sex with someone else and then suddenly they cheat on that person and we don't see that, like what are we supposed to take as a character beat from that? Other than that, they are unfaithful. Like we didn't get to see any of the emotions play across their face in that moment. Like, it's it's just bananas to me that that was the choice that was made in that movie when they could have cut, like, 17 minutes from any of the other sex scenes and had time for it. Well, I mean, that's the other thing that they don't show or even really talk about in this film is Sophie the maid, she's gotten pregnant. We don't know the story behind that, and we certainly don't see it. I mean, obviously, she's not the protagonist. But the abortion part is a pretty significant subplot, and I think... Mm -hmm. 
that goes back to sort of the interest in the psychological impact of events um, on women rather than necessarily the events themselves. Like, we're interested in dealing with the aftermath of the sex, which is having to deal with the abortion, as opposed to, like, what was that sex like is not really what the film is interested in. Um, But I wonder if part of the reason that we're aligning, like, why it's more interested in, like, the intimacy, too, between the women for the sex scenes is because, like, the film is kind of a memory, and it's, it's about memory, and it's also kind of Marianne's memory. Sure. And you can imagine that the moments that we see there are like the moments that you would that you would cling cling to as far as because those are moments of great intimacy as opposed to like you probably don't remember your like sexual encounter from like A to Z, all sure. of the details. Yeah, one yeah, of the I, best I, um, sex scenes that I've ever seen is actually on the television show Hannibal. Um, and it was, it was oddly enough between two women. Uh, I cannot remember their names. I think it was Alana Bloom and the sister of the guy who got his face eaten off anyway. But what was interesting about it is, (laughs) look, I'm talking about Hannibal. That stuff is normal. Um, what was interesting about it is that, you know, this was like, I think during its third season when basically like every producer on the show was just like, who cares? And so all of the creative forces behind it were like, we can go nuts. And so it was this kaleidoscopic vision of just like the two women. And it was literally kaleidoscopic, like fragmented mirror images, their bodies melting into one another. And I watched it and I just said, that is the most realistic sex scene that I've ever seen. And I cannot believe it just aired on broadcast television in America. <laughs> it was just uh, really like assaultive in a good way, I guess. It was just the purest distillation of like what good, fulfilling sex can be. <laughs> I love that I uh, now got us into this. I'm sorry. <laughs> now let's all go over our favorite sexual encounter from our past. Michael wow, Jeez. Okay. <laughs> I, I do think, though, I, 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 for what it's worth, Alex, I, I think you've fully convinced me here. I, I, I think that there is something, uh, again, as I was saying, like, I think the very fact that this is forced to be a memory in, instead of, you know, being their lifetime or something is something that makes that connection all all the stronger in the sense that even you know i even you think about how hasty when um sorry when uh when marianne is is finally leaving and you know she's finished the painting you you think about the very awkward hug she gives eloise like it's very heartfelt but it's very quick And, and you know then she's running down the stairs to the point where then you know Eloise says look back and in in reference again to Orpheus and Eurydice's or Eurydice's 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 <laughs> right all right I was going to let it slide um, that one time but you just keep saying it but I I I really think that is uh a, a scene that really does communicate that uh, that uh, that sense of urgency that you're talking about, Alex. Like, it's not that I don't think those scenes are there. I just again found that fascinating in relation to 
how the rest of the film is edited. Um, but I, yeah, I, uh, I totally lost my point. But yeah, I really like that, that scene. <laughs> um, yeah, someone else jump in, please. <laughs> Well, we've talked a lot about, like, the intimacy in the film, but we haven't talked a lot about the idea of the gaze and sort of who's being watched and this the subject or the object becoming the subject. Yeah, and it it certainly seems to switch throughout the film. Mm -hmm. I, too, agree with that statement. Did I bring us to a standstill? Is, is this me? I'm sorry, but the second we start talking about orgasms, I don't know where to go. <laughs> we went like years on Wonderful. this podcast without ever talking about like sex in a detailed way. And I feel like the like in the last two months, we've done it twice now and it's just getting weird. I, I blame uh, Jordan. <laughs> yeah, it was it was obviously that Almodovar film. Um, yeah. Bill, you still here? <laughs> Hello, just sitting in the wings watching y'all make fools of yourselves. <laughs> That's the way to do it. It's taking the smart move. Uh, yeah, when I, they get back I, I will, to music, will, that's when I'll jump in. Until then, let them hang themselves. <laughs> uh, well, I'll we jump could in talk- and say that I actually like Blue is the Warmest Color, but I also haven't seen that in a long time. Um I think there was something to be said about just the visceral, uh, not reaction, but just the the fact that sex became so, so paramount in that film and it made no bones about it not being open and, and explicit. Um, I mean, he even came with that controversial NC-17 rating for a little while, if I'm not mistaken, or even held it while it was being released. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's it's always interesting to talk about the other kind of hallmarks in, in this genre, but also I feel like that's that's so limiting because this film has so much more to offer than just it being a lesbian love story. Um, but you know, there's, there's even weird outside stuff that is going on in this film, whether it's the fact that they actually hired a professional painter to be the painter in this film. Um, so when you see the painter, uh, or not the painter, uh, when you see the hands, of uh the the woman uh Marianne N- Naomi Merlant she's not actually painting that it's uh actually Helene Delmer um who is a real artist and that's she she painted live on set and made several different variations of this of the singular portrait um or even the fact that uh uh Siyama's girlfriend if i'm not mistaken uh is actually Adele Hanel um i, I thought they were former I might be former right. girlfriend yeah, okay. Okay. okay yeah okay which is uh, even more of a mind fuck right it's like oh geez okay so yeah there's there's a lot going on in this film um i think 
you know, this this makes a really good bookend with a film like Little Women, where we actually see a female painter that is actually making money. Um, but we also learn in this film, I didn't realize until the second time when I watched it that um, Marianne's father is also a painter and she's set to basically inherit his kind of reputation and his company and that's kind of set her up for success in this pathway Mm -hmm. whereas i think a lot of female painters especially around this time period um may not have had that kind of upper hand and that chance to do what she does right i mean she's she's literally sent out to do a painting of this woman that's that's wild right she's not she's not someone doesn't just show up on her doorstep and is like hey i want a painting of myself no like they they shipped her out that's that's pretty wild right but i mean it complicates that because she buys her independence at the expense of becoming complicit in patriarchy Mm -hmm. because her job is to paint the portrait that's going to sell Eloise off into marriage. Sure. Absolutely. And and that's that's the argument. And that's why at first, I think initially and it, it, it's always funny because I, I find there's two different sides that I can kind of see very easily. Um whether her first painting was actually good enough or was it not. And she decided to ruin it for the sake of having another chance or did she ruin it because she really did feel like she was going to sell Heloise off in a way and hadn't given her the chance to make that kind of blessing uh, fully – you know, under under the circumstances that she actually knew that she was being painted, right? Um, and I I find that fascinating because the second time I I saw it, I looked at the painting and I said, "Looks good to me, bro." <laughs> oh, no, really? No, the first painting is awful. It's it doesn't look anything they're like Eloise. They're always awful. They're, they're always awful. awful. The well, second painting is a lot better. The the first painting, yeah. I was like, Heloise is going to be furious. Because her face is not that round. It's well, she does she does say pointedly, is is this me? Yeah. And then she says, I didn't expect to see myself in it. I didn't expect to not see you in it either. And I was like, damn. Yeah. Way to call her out for just taking the paycheck. Um, I, I mean, I, well, I do I do feel for Marianne though, like painting by candlelight after looking at this woman for a couple of hours, like Jesus, you want to talk about like freehand drawing and stuff like that. That's just sheer memory. It just felt so weird to me that like, hello, I would say Heloise's most distinctive feature is the, the long angular nature of her face. (laughs) And it looked like Brie Larson. I was like, this is not not the right facial structure. And then I was like, does she just not give a shit? Like, is she doing like, basically like uh, portraiture 101 but with enough defining characteristics that no one could like say that she was not even well, bothering that's effectively what she's trying to do um I mean, angelo moretta wrote this really brilliant essay in our book that kind of changed how i thought a lot about a lot of the, the painting in the film where he's basically he basically no- noticed that 
all of the all of the paintings of women at the beginning of the film, like the two of of um, Eloise and also the one of her mother, they all look exactly the same. They're all following a set of conventions, which are basically the male conventions of painting that Marianne's father has taught to her. And mm. it's Eloise that then challenges her and says, it's like so impersonal. It doesn't look like me and it doesn't have you in it. Um, and it sort of challenges her to, um, I guess, I think the way that Angela put it was, or at least the, what we ended up calling his essay was unlearn the male gaze. Um, and so, I mean, I agree. Why does she, why does she destroy the painting? I imagine there's lots of reasons, including she wants to spend more time with Eloise. She feels like she didn't give her a fair shot, given that it's going to sell her off into marriage. She's not happy with her own work. And I think also she sees that Eloise is somebody who can actually critically challenge her in a way that nobody ever has because everyone has just sort of accepted the conventions. And then that Mm -hmm. kind of carries through with Marianne's art afterwards, because at the end she's revealing that um, painting she did of Orpheus and Eurydice. And, you know, they talk about how they're, in her porch, in her painting, they're looking at each other and how that's not how they're normally depicted. And it's, you know, sure. the results of that conversation that they had. And so she's now starting to sort of challenge within the set of conventions to challenge them a bit and push them in a way that hadn't been done before. Because when you see Eloise at the end, she, the, that portrait of her with her daughter, it's the round face again. Oh, see, I thought that was just, I, because we hadn't seen her as well. I was like, oh, she's like filled out. I just thought that was like the because ch- it seemed as though in the um we've sort of accidentally slid into spoilers and I don't care. So if you're still listening, spoilers. Um, when you see her at the at the um the orchestra concert, mm-hmm. what am I having so much trouble with the basic words of the English language? Um, maybe I should try Russian. Uh, yeah, when you see her at the the concert at the uh, the orchestra, she. Like I don't maybe it was just my TV or something, but it looked like she had like her hair had gone a little dark, and it did look as though she had she had aged up a bit. Which you know, like suddenly having married life and a child and everything could do that to you. So I didn't even I didn't even put together that maybe it was just another portrait artist who was like, all right, here's just a blonde woman with a kid. <laughs> I mean, really it's just sort of very cherubic. The, the whole yeah. the way that whole painting is like in the shape of the face but also just sort of like the color of everything and it yeah yeah but also there's a part of me that's like she must have had some say over how that portrait is gone because why the hell else would that book be in it well she maybe she's yeah well that's an interesting question isn't it because even if like let's say that the portrait artist is like okay you want to hold that book great she's like okay and he's like you know your finger is in the book she's like oh yeah it is and then he's like okay and then he does that and then she walks over and says can you put the number 28 on there? And he's just like, fine, sure. Jesus. Freaking weird woman with this book. Meanwhile, your kid's standing there. I pay for it. I pay. I get what I want. That's kind of an ugly kid, by the way, too. Oh, really? I thought that kid looked good. But again, you know, no. now I don't trust the portrait artist. <laughs> this, this portrait artist who I have, for some reason, just made very ornery. Now I want to see the spinoff of like 
uh, men try and paint Eloise. She is not having it. <laughs> this guy who's just like, oh, man, one of these days I'm going to paint like, you know, my, my masterpiece. I really love landscapes. But, you know, the only thing that makes money is portraits of rich broads. And he's like down in his luck. He has no money. He can barely afford the paint for this thing. And there's Heloise being like, well, first of all, I don't want to be here. Second of all, here's my kid, I guess. Second of all, or third of all, I need this book and I need you to make sure that the page number is totally in there. And he's like, all right, well, you're holding it open. Like, can I see what's in the book? She's like, no, you can't. I am in no way showing you the lewd drawing of my ex-lover that I am now holding three inches from my daughter's head. <laughs> okay now that you like <laughs> outline this it's a little <laughs> and poor thomas is just sitting there with his rags and he's like i just gotta paint this woman so i can finally move out to the country alex i think you need to add another essay to the book <laughs> <laughs> the unknowable I'm mystery really of <laughs> now by like what what does eloise say to get that 28 in there it's a uh, I am 28 because <laughs> I was thinking about it I was I, this is again just how my mind works but I was like you know you you always see those things in like art history professors are like if you stand at the right angle that fruit turns into a skull and it's because of blah 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 and you're like oh that makes sense sure 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 and so but that painting wasn't that intricate like that 28 was the finest detail in that painting and then there's a part of me that was like what if he finished it and she just fucking went with a magic marker and wrote the 28 on it. <laughs> magic marker back then. I love it. Yeah. No. I, this is the untold history. The untold history of the magic marker. And I'm just thinking, like, you know, what was that painting for? Like, was it for her house and it's just on loan now? Like, or did, like, you know, it's in this gallery. So, like... It's not like it's in her home because if it's in her home, I think she would know what the 28 was. But now it's in the gallery. So, like, did she change it when she heard it was going to the gallery? You know, it, it, it's funny because we're all kind of laughing about this and, and having a good time. But I definitely like the second time I watched it, I was definitely like, but there's got to be a story about that book in 28. <laughs> like, like, you can't just you can't just put that in a painting and then just just put it out on display and it's like that, that painting is very much for one person like this is this is a uh what, what, what was it like craigslist used to do this like uh misconnections or something like that and yeah then, it literally it seemed like she maybe post. was like ship or not shipping a bottling a message in a bottling it out there like yeah but it was just weird because again it was like it's almost weird that she did it in a painting with her child because it's like, oh, yeah. check out the life I'm having now. I hope you're doing well, I guess. Wait, we had a steamy connection until you sold me off into marriage. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Michael. Okay. Maybe if you'd drawn me a little <laughs> uglier, he wouldn't have wanted me. Well, okay, oh, but I mean, to a degree... In a way, you could say that they that she sort of makes the poet's choice there, and then so does Marianne, because Eloise sort of gives Marianne the opportunity to see her, or, you know, she sends Marianne a message without actually having to see her and sort of pollute the memory that she has of what her time with Marianne was based on, you know, where Marianne's life has gone. And then similarly, like, Marianne sees her at the concert, but then, d like, doesn't go and talk to her. Well, so not she that makes we the know. Choice. Well, <clears throat> yeah. So you assume she's sort of making the choice to have the memory of her that they both sort of want to live 
with the memory of their time together rather than with the realities of where life has brought them afterwards. By the way, I love that that sequence does not end with her moving her head. I thought I, I'm just I was just waiting for her to move her head to the point of being an eye line. Yeah. Like looking Marianne, down the barrel of the, uh, yeah. Well, that's that's sort of the that's kind of the genius of that scene is you spend the whole time being like, look back, look back. <laughs> Oh no! I was thinking that's that, that that it was it was literally impossible because she had already said in voiceover that she never saw her. So I never thought that she was going to turn her head and look. Gee, down. are like, you somebody who like watches Romeo and Juliet and is like they're definitely going to die? Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I'm like these these two people are doomed. <laughs> Did you didn't hear the the guy at the beginning? He said star-crossed lovers in Verona, where they said our scene. I mean, he told you the whole damn story. Titanic's gonna hit a fucking iceberg. Like we know what's happening here. Oh boy! Well, now I understand why the romance didn't hit you. It's just inherently cynical. Yeah, you just saw that first scene, and you're like, ah, they don't end up together. But my favorite type of romance is things where people don't end up together. That's sure. like my whole thing. I wrote an entire novel that I I pitched to someone as a romance where the people never actually say "I love you" or kiss. Like. <laughs> It's literally, it's literally like it's almost like Portrait of Art. If, if like it had just stayed in the first act for the entire fucking thing, and then they left and never said anything to each other, it's the most unfulfilling romance that has ever been written, and it's entirely about that. Just about how like the feeling of knowing that you are capable of love can sometimes be enough to change things, even if you don't end up with that one first person. Brian, it, maybe you deserve love, not just the feeling that you can deserve love. <laughs> it like sets your sets your expectations a little higher. <laughs> no, I'm good where I'm at. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I love the speaking of sound uh, and diegetic music and everything. That was a very good uh, arrangement uh, or orchestration yes, of uh, the summer by Vivaldi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did uh, did Sama talk at all about how that was chosen or anything? Did you ask her about anything about how that scene came together, Alex? Oh, good question. Um, <laughs> I asked Adele Hinnell about that scene. Um, did I ask Sama about that scene? <laughs> I think my understanding is that she, when she wrote this script, she wrote it with that final scene in mind like that was the first thing that came to her about this story i think it was that scene wow. and possibly the portrait and then she kind of like wrote the story around that um i believe um that's from other interviews not from one that i did um and i think i mean something that adele hinnell talked about was sort of how do you sort of show emotion without showing too much? And like, how do you make sure that you're communicating emotion, but not like overdoing it just to prove that you're a good actress, but like doing mm. what the character would be doing. Um, and so in that scene, yeah, I think she, I mean, no surprise. It was kind of intense to shoot. Um <laughs> 
And I think the other thing is that it's a movie about, I would imagine why one of the reasons it's chosen was because it's, it's a movie about this, like being in, they're in this sort of liminal space. They're in this transition period between Eloise's life in the convent and Eloise's life um, as a married woman. Um, and so it's sort of this temporary thing. So what better than to think about the seasons and summer is sort of the transition. Is that, summer, so. wait, you know, we're, that might be the most controversial thing anyone has ever said on this podcast. <laughs> summer is definitely, spring is the transition into summer, right? Right. Right. Summer is the end game. It's like, I always, oh, this is going to be one of those weird things. No, I, I don't think mean of summer and winter as the anchoring seasons. Yeah, I don't mean that summer is itself a time of transition. I would guess, I would say more that summer is sort of like what the film is, right? They're living in this time that's like, um, this sort of temporary utopia that exists for these hmm. two weeks, right? Which is like summer, you have nice weather and it's sunny, um, but it can't last because fall is coming. Okay, fall right. is coming. <laughs> a much less interesting Game of Thrones. <laughs> Pretty soon you're going to have to wear a light coat. <laughs> Instagram influencers will fill our woods. <laughs> man um yeah any uh what uh are we missing any thoughts has anyone not said anything that they really wanted to well you i'm curious to hear if you have thoughts on the other point scene of diegetic music in the film which i think is sort of one of the best scenes in the film when she's playing the harpsichord uh no when they're around the choral harmony oh Yeah. yeah that was great in fact, it's that that choral harmony is so good that I was like, it's weird that this mu- the movie has had no music and now suddenly they're introducing a synth. <laughs> it was very off putting, and then I realized that it was all the, the the women around the fire singing. I was like, oh wow, they're they're really good. There's a fantastic soundtrack in uh, Girlhood. I cannot remember the artist at all, though. Unfortunately, oh, were you it's like very synth heavy. Oh, no. no, well, oh, the Rihanna about- scene's fantastic, but the, the score, too, is oh, so good okay. in Girlhood. Yeah, there's a ton of music in Girlhood, which is yes. a big contrast to, to this film. So, I mean, Including ha- that Rihanna scene, yeah. <laughs> um, was this your first CMF? I mean, I guess, Michael, you've seen her other films, but... Everything except Water Lilies. Right, because it's impossible to find, except on... It's on criteria at the moment. moment. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I haven't seen any others. I really want to see um all the others now because I am I, I I really liked like I said, I liked all the the mechanics here. And it it feels like this is probably this it almost feels like this is a director who I already like and this just movie didn't work for me, which is uh, an interesting way to feel about someone when you see their first film. Because I just am like, there's so much in here that I would like. Yeah, no, I mean, I kind of get that sort of how I felt about the souvenir, which it was weird to me watching everybody go gaga over that when I was like, yeah, it's good. Well, that's how I felt about about this movie. I've jokingly referred to this movie for the past like two months as the greatest cinematic romance ever because (laughs) fucking uh, every tweet, every time I'm on Twitter on my phone where the promoted tweets come up, I see that and I'm just like, guys, really calm down. Like... (laughs) No one says cinema's greatest love story. They just say a great romance story. Like, A, you you have the humility to at least say, we're up there. Don't get me wrong, but we're not alone. 
no. we're up there. <laughs> Pretty high up there. You know, you always see like a stirring, like emotional drama. It's not the stirring emotional drama. <laughs> so I was like, that's bold. That's bold as hell. Um, but yeah, I saw a lot of very laudatory things about this. And Michael, you said for some, you said that like other people were lukewarm on it, Brian, don't worry. And I just had not seen any of that. I, I think there are some people I can, I, I'm not going to speak to anyone in particular, put them on blast or anything, but I, I've seen some people who feel that this is a stiff film and, and that the emotion isn't, isn't there and, and that it's a right. cold well, film. And, and, and again, like, I guess the last thing I'd like to say, I, I've said this before in different words, but I really think in a way, even the people who are most positive about this movie, uh, in some cases, I think they did a disservice to, to like the actual form of this movie. I think yeah. the more that you talk about the, the kind of like quiet hush nature of it and how, you know, magisterial it is and everything. Yes, it's a gorgeous film, but like that takes all the life out of it. You're missing the whole damn point. But what's weird to me is that I watched and I did not feel any life in it. So that's uh that's interesting. I did feel the magisterial. Well, it's, I don't know why I kept speaking after that analogy about ballet. Cause I feel like that was the apotheosis of my feelings on this movie. Does it have no life and no presence, Brian? Are you setting me up for some kind of weird pun? No, it's just, it's what they say in the movie. The oh, first painting, okay. that's what. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the way he said that, I was like, huh, this is a weird way to set someone up to say something weird. It's like I was like, low life, no presence, like a family murdered on Christmas Eve. Like, where's he going with this? Like, what's the Whoa. joke going to be? Um, no yeah, jokes. so clearly my mind is broken, uh, as we already learned when I talked about love earlier. <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting though, seeing like, you know, all these people screaming about this movie, but then it was also strange because it, it seemed like it was positioned to be a year end thing. And I feel like it's, it, it, despite the, the, uh, superlative promoted tweets from neon, it's kind of, I don't sure. know, is it doing well? Like, is it finding an audience or? It is doing well. I mean, the reason for the move is a complicated inside baseball thing that has to do with Neon having Parasite yeah, and um, Portrait and France choosing Les Miserables for its Oscar submission. Mm-hmm. So they went from being like, we're going to campaign hard on this to let's put all of our eggs in the Parasite basket. Ew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> phrasing (laughs) oh boy did you leave the lid off the parasite basket (laughs) old trevor's got the shakes again (laughs) that's how the coronavirus started right Oh. Just bringing a full circle. Okay, cool. Well, though, it opens strong for like well, a film of this kind, in the sense that sure. it like it has subtitles. Good. <laughs> that two inch barrier as a uh, Bong Joon. That's right. Yes. That's great. Um but yeah, yeah. So I, I wouldn't tell anyone not to see this movie. It's it's clearly well made. I don't know. Because every time <laughs> Usually, like my, I'm like I'm negative on something, and I'm like, don't bother. I've, every time that I I like a movie, but I just am not 
really on fire about it. I'm <laughs> oh, the puns. <laughs> More like a still life, am Yikes. I right? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I um. Are, are I, we talking about abortions again? Oh boy, Oof. I'm just so glad that my coronavirus comment is no longer the most tasteless. My coronavirus comment. Ah, uh, yeah, Ooh, that abortion scene. Um, I was gonna say something, and now I can't remember what it was. Michael aborted the thought in my mind. Oh, okay. Did I do let's, it? Did I get the most on. tasteless comment? No, let's let's end this. <laughs> it's a good movie. People should see it. And there's a lot going on in it. I think it works both on an emotional level and an intellectual one. So even if you're not interested in the romance or if you're coming for the romance, there's something there for you. Dare you say one could write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> one might say that, in fact. Hopefully someday someone will. Uh, no plugs, end of episode. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> Actually, no, wait, I, I remember... Put it I, on a T. <laughs> I did have a. I, I was because Michael is always complaining about movies being too neat, um, and yeah. I felt that in this movie because of things like them having that very on the nose conversation about um, uh, a dis. Uh, no, yes, no, uh, Eurydice and Orpheus. Um, it's um, and it was it was kind of funny because that was the one. So, uh, like that was the first and like one of the only scenes where like you could kind of feel the characters like actually defining themselves um just through like pure independent thought rather than like their reaction to society around them um mm. but it was done in a way that has anyone here seen oh hello on broadway uh the uh the john mulaney and nick crawl thing on netflix no i was not I've expecting this the- comparison <laughs> I've seen the one Jake Gyllenhaal scene. <laughs> oh, wasn't that was from the sack lunch bunch? Oh, right. Oh, there's more than one of these things. Yes. Never mind. So there's something called mm. Oh Hello, and it's all about <laughs> it's it's them playing two old men who have failed at being both writers and actors. And they they have like they they do a scene and they like say like, you know, oh, like something about artistic integrity, and the other one says See, I'm here all about the money. What are we? Two people with different opinions on things. And it's, you know, making fun of that kind of establishing communication between characters. And that scene felt very much like that. And then her doing that painting, I felt like, yes, yes, I get it. I understand. Very neat. This is interesting. Like, but like, again, it just, it led to the same kind of like, I guess I finally understood what Michael meant by neatness because it felt like this movie longed to be more organic and messy but it was it was having to come back to these same like two or three beats and it, and for some reason though the the playing of uh summer by vivaldi did not strike me in that same way i think because I, it was a purely more emotional moment but i, I mean, think it, it's sorry alex go ahead like i there's i think there's it's a fine line between you know callbacks to within your own writing and being dickens with like oh you know that subplot you forgot about 
Gonna tie that one up. You thought the story was over? Ten more chapters to tie up every single person I ever you ever met in this entire book. And we're taking the hobbits back to the Shire, where they're gonna have to fight a bunch of other people. (laughs) I mean, I don't think the film does that. It's not. It's it's not on that level. Um, Yeah. And I don't think it's on that level either. No, it's it, but it just it did. I in in coming back to those two things, I did think to myself like, that's right. Their they ha- their relationship. When I think back on it, feels rather thin. Like just the the levels on which they connected, or like any of the insight we got into their like mindsets. Well, I strongly disagree with that. Well, yeah, <laughs> Fine <too>. for you. <laughs> Again, this that's just something I wanted to bring up because it, it was the one time, Michael. Where I think I could understand you constantly calling things too neat. Mm-hmm. Not clever, though. I still don't understand Great. clever. Thank you. <laughs> God. Your anhedonia See, is think, rubbing off. I, I think this is a messy film, though. I, I, I think that it, and, and I mean messy in a good way, in the sense that I think that the shape is constantly mutating. I think mm-hmm. even that Orpheus and you, Eurydice. There you go. Eurydice. Eurydice. You had it right the first time. Even that scene, though, as I said, though, I think both options that they bring up are not options that they actually have in terms of their romance they don't get the choice of whether to you know they can't decide to not look back and have this romance forever like so i think i think it's interesting that you bring up that that's one of the only scenes where they're able to express independent thought i i I mean i'd say that in general the the times when they're alone with sophie are times when they're continually you know, expressing independent thought outside of, you know, the expectation that at, you know, as soon as she finishes that painting that they are, um, sorry, as soon as they finish the painting that, uh, Halloween will be sent away. So I, I think it is a lot more messy and it doesn't have easy endings. I mean, I mean, even when you think about the last, one of the last images, of where Eloise says look back she's wearing the exact dress that we'd seen her uh, uh, you know when she appeared as an apparition or earlier in the film like like I I think that there are a number of things that are are very untidy in this and you know um, Wait, you think that the you think that okay now I no longer know what you mean by neat <laughs> Because I think the fact that her haunting the image of the future haunting her is Heloise in the wedding dress. So having her say "look back" and seeing her in the wedding dress is incredibly neat. But like again, in a way that I sort of liked, unlike the Orpheus and Eurydice's thing. But it's you know what we're gonna agree. Or is to that disagree. clever? Is that <laughs> oh. clever, Michael? <laughs> I can't do this. One of these days, you and I just have to have a two-hour-long thing where I just start naming movies and we try to really nail down a definition of what's neat and what's clever. Uh, all I mean, I think we can all agree that too- Michael is right. <laughs> <laughs> about what is and what isn't neat and clever? About the, fa- about the quality of this film, how it's messy in some ways, and that it is very good. Because you're definitely getting outvoted on that. Well, yes, obviously my opinion has been proven wrong by majority rule, which is how these things work. So I will amend my letterboxed rating 
And I will add this to my top ten of the year list. Um, right. I will end this by saying all Nolan is too neat and dull. <laughs> but see, uh, okay, yeah, we're just true. gonna have to. No, bye. <laughs> we can't. We're not getting into it. I think that certain movies cry out for neatness and cleverness, and some I think desire to be a little more messy and unchained. And I wish that this one again, it's the ballet thing. Like when I go to see a Nolan, I'm like, yeah, this is like ballet to me, basically. But this movie, I just kept longing for it to be not ballet. I but that's fine. It's, I I, yeah. I read today that uh, Christopher Nolan used to force his brother to watch Blade Runner every week. And it like mm. fully illustrated how much of a nightmare person Christopher Nolan would be. Wait, you never forced. A, do you wait? Do you have brothers or sisters? I have a sister who's ten years older than me. Oh, okay. See, so you don't get I it. I have biological brothers <laughs> who I didn't grow up with. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. No. Like when you when you were a child, and if you can exert any control over your sibling, like that's the type of stuff that happens. You would make someone watch a Blade Runner every week? Maybe not Blade Runner, but I'm pretty sure I forced my brother to watch like King Kong or Jurassic Park like way too much. <laughs> and my sister used to be in control of the television. Do you know how many times I saw the you, like a, a, an illustrated watch, My Little Ponies movie? You can't watch <laughs> Jurassic Park too much. <laughs> Did they say which version of Blade Runner was? Anyway, I think we've come to a logical <laughs> end. Oh, Speaking boy. of messiness, um trying to end this podcast always a bloodbath uh anyway portrait lady Does the dog die <laughs> there was no dog in this movie was there no no that fe- it felt like there should have been a dog somewhere in that house um portrait okay. lady on fire is out in theaters now uh that go wasn't see it. in her memories go see it it's a great old time at the movies <laughs> i don't know uh Let's uh, let's wrap it up. Uh, remember that you can get a free 30-day subscription to movie by going to mubi.com slash filmstage where you can see all of their great films such as The Toxic Avenger and The Last Man on Earth. All you got to do is go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. Uh, and don't forget that you can become a patron of this by going to patreon.com slash slash the filmstage show. Uh, so this one dollar an episode gets you access to our slack channel and also if you email us after you join you get a blu-ray huzzah that's it for today uh let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time we begin with our guest alexini um you can find me on twitter at b west cineast that's b-w-e-s-t-c-i-n-e-a-s-t-e and you can find like anything that i mentioned on the show um i'll put it up on a at a seventh-row.com slash film stage portrait that's s-e-v-e-n-t-h-r-o-w.com slash film stage portrait i'll put up links there to all of the essays that i talked about um and mentioned uh all of the essays, interviews, et cetera, that I mentioned on the show, I'll put up there. Um, and if you're interested in getting our book on Celine Siama, which I edited and also wrote several things for, um, you can get that at siamabook.com. That's siamabook.com. Awesome. Bill Graham. You can find me on the Slack channel, mixing it up as always. And you can also find me on Twitter at CableBFG. Um, look back. <laughs> Are you asking us to kill you? (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. All right. Uh, Michael Slidell, what are we talking about next week? Did we decide? Is it The Hunt? I think it might be Bakaru. No. I do not. Did you say The Hobbit? The Hobbit. No. No. The Hunt. No. Bakarau or First Cow, depending how where it's going to be playing. I think think it's still kind of limited. (laughs) No, we're not doing the way back, Brian. The way back's not bad, though. It's better than I thought it was going to be, and I wasn't excited for it. So. Have seen First Cow? I'm I have sorry? not seen First Cow, no. No, not I mean, yet. Nobody's seen First Cow, but it's really good. Yeah, no, I'm, I am dying to see it. Did, did you interview the cow? <laughs> I didn't interview the cow, but That's... one of my colleagues will be interviewing the cow's trainer this okay. week. So that will be in the book. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, How do you train uh, a cow? Please let that be the first question. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do, sir? How have you conned people into believing that this cow can be trained? <laughs> You're more of a wrangler, aren't you? Isn't that the truth? Really All turn right, this into I'm a Frost on, Nixon thing. I'm on Twitter. Uh, that's Nidel. <laughs> I'm on uh, Letterbox. As I said, I just had a review for the way back go up on the spool. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I seem to be reappraising movies that people don't like on Letterbox lately. Like I kind of liked Spider-Man three and I watched uh, what lies beneath last night. And that movie's great. And on Netflix and a very good Hitchcock riff. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I don't think I'm writing about anything this week. I don't know. (laughs) Should probably check that. Michael Slidell constantly missing deadlines. (laughs) Not constantly. Nearly constantly. (laughs) Can't even be consistent in missing them. Um, Exactly. What am I? What about me? What do I do? My name is uh, Brian J. Rowan. You can find me if you Google Brian J. Rowan, or if you search it on any social media site, it's probably me that comes up. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, everything. Brian J. Rowan, Letterboxd at Brian J. Rowan, my personal site, BrianJRowan.com, where you can find stuff that I've done. Uh, and of course, you can find my writing and every episode of this year's podcast at filmstage.com. And if you're in the Maryland, D.C. area and you're not afraid of stepping outside, don't forget to stop by Schmidt Spirits in Beltsville <laughs> on the weekends, where you can sample my delicious gin and whiskey. And uh, pick Can you wash your hands with it? It is. I don't. You know. I don't know what proof something has to be in order to uh, to be an antiseptic. But sure, yeah. If you want to buy our <laughs> gin because you can't find any cleaning products anywhere, and just use it to wash your hands, our gin is flavored with juniper berries, orange peel, and lavender. So your hands will smell delightful, and you will get pulled over when you're driving and thrown in jail. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and tune in next week.